Well, if you have your scriptures, would you turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. That's where we're going to be reading from, Matthew chapter 12, verse 9. And uh, the title of my sermon today is The Bruised Reed, The Bruised Reed. We're going to read a section that's describing Jesus' ministry, what he did and how he did it. And what we read is going to be then described by Matthew as fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah describing Jesus. And in it, that's where we'll find this bruised reed. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 9 following. Departing from there, Jesus went into their synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they questioned Jesus, asking him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, what man is there among you who has a sheep? And if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable then is a man than a sheep? So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. But Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all and warned them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I'll put my spirit upon him and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. A bruised reed. This passage is an incredible insight, not only into the power of the ministry of Jesus, but also an incredible insight into the character of the man, Jesus. What we've read, we, we, we see Jesus at the top of his game, not that he had a, a lesser game, but, but here he is. Those that are coming to, to him, he's not just healing some, he's healing them all. He has incredible power over the enemy, over the demonic power, and he delivers this, this man who was blind and mute. And so here he is preaching the gospel. He withdraws and many people follow him. What we're seeing here are great days. Great days of Jesus' ministry, great preaching power, great healing power, great delivering power, great crowds, great opposition too. We can see that uh, when he healed the man on the Sabbath, that the Pharisees went out and began to plot how to 
destroy Jesus. And if you go a little bit further back in Matthew, you see that there has been uh, some discussions between Jesus and the Pharisees. And because of the power and the proclamation and the anointing that's upon Jesus and the ministry to the crowds, the religious leaders are getting more and more angry about Jesus who seems to be getting more and more popular and more and more powerful in everything that we do. So Jesus is subject to this murderous plot of the Pharisees. We see it there. They want to destroy him. And then when he, when he delivers a man from being blind and mute, what a wonderful miracle. The Pharisees are there and they're casting aspersions on Jesus' ministry. And they're, they're, they're plotting and they're, they're, they're sending out lies and blasphemies about him saying, this man casts out demon by a demon. So you can see that there is tremendous power, but also there is tremendous opposition. And that opposition are about, are, are intending to thoroughly bring Jesus into a state of disrepute. They're saying the man's a witch. The man's a warlock. He moves by demon power. They're telling people to stay away from him. And they're plotting, saying, whatever it takes, we have to destroy this man's reputation and we have to destroy this man. This is what's going on. So when you look into these scriptures that we've just read, you see tremendous power, tremendous days. But how does Jesus himself handle these things? Because when you read this, you could look at the power, the power of deliverance and say, praise God. You could look at the power of salvation, the gospels being preached. You could look at the power, he healed them all. You could look at the opposition and you could just stay there. But what we have to say is, well, how was Jesus handling all this success, all this power, all this favor of God? How also was he handling the fact that there were genuine people out, not, not, not just didn't like his preaching or didn't like what he was doing or mumbling about it, but plotting and actively wanting to destroy him. How did he deal with his enemies here? Well, we see this beautiful picture of the man Jesus and the character Jesus in the midst of all this power and opposition that leads to Matthew saying, do you know, this is a fulfillment of a passage from Isaiah 42. Matthew's writing his gospel, and as he writes this section, he stops. The Holy Spirit speaks to him and reminds him of the Isaiah passage we read together and says, this is the fulfillment. And this passage is a description of the person of Jesus and the character of Jesus and how he handled such power, but also how he handled such opposition and persecution. First thing we see uh, in his reaction to the Pharisees in verse 14, going out conspiring as how to destroy him, it says Jesus was aware of this. He knew what was going on. So what did he do? He withdrew from there. The Pharisees plot violence to Jesus, but instead of Jesus meeting violence with violence, he could have called on the power of angels. He could have called on fire to, de to devour them. He could have used the crowds. He had all of these crowds following him, and he could have stirred up the crowds and said, go get them. <laughs> go and destroy those Pharisees. They're out to get me. You go and sort them out. He had all 
of this power that was moving to him. But instead of confronting his enemies with anger and violence or retribution or political power or supernatural power, he just withdrew. But as he withdrew, he couldn't shake off the crowds. They followed them and he kept healing them. And then we get this passage about Isaiah uh, 42. And Matthew has translated this passage himself from the Hebrew in Isaiah into Greek. Because, you know, you know, you have different versions of the Bible and uh, they, they all uh, translate the original Hebrew in the Old Testament or the original Greek that the New Testament's written in. But, you know, you can translate it in different ways, can't you? You can choose which word in English you're going to use to translate the word in Greek or Hebrew. That's why we have NIV versions and New King James versions and uh, uh, ESV virgin versions. And they're all there, aren't they? And they're all translating and they're all correct, but they might use different words. Different. They'll see a different emphasis that they want in the original Hebrew or Greek to bring out. And that's what Matthew does. So when you read Matthew's uh, translation, it's the same message that you read in Isaiah, but he's chosen to translate it in different ways than, than we find in the Old Testament. And it's a description of the Jesus that, that we've come, come up for. He is, he is withdrawn from these attacks and he asks for silence. It's like a messianic secret. He's saying, look, I'm, I'll heal you, but don't go telling everybody. Imagine that, a healing evangelist going around healing people and saying, shh, don't tell them that. Don't tell them, just keep it to yourself. Can you imagine a Pentecostal healing evangelist going around healing multitudes and telling them, please, can you keep quiet? On the contrary, more likely a Pentecostal charismatic evangelist uh, will take some little healing and then post it on billboards all the, all the way around to say, uh, to, to publicize their ministry and what's happened to them very interesting. You do often see this actually in charismatic circles when people immaturely handle the, the spiritual gifts. So I've seen over the years people, God has used them in this position or that position or this or in the marketplace and they've prayed for someone and someone has got healed, genuinely healed and it's a remarkable breakthrough. But what, it, what isn't remarkable or what, what isn't good is the way that the person seems to think that all of a sudden uh, there's something special. And so they don't just talk about the healing, but as they talk about the healing, you get this idea that, wow, look, God used me and not you. And, and, and maybe I have a ministry that's special and better than, than your ministry. And, and their flesh gets mixed up with the power of God. But here Jesus is, is healing everybody and he's saying, look, I'm not doing this to, pro to promote my ministry. I'm doing this because I'm promoting the gospel. I'm promoting God's grace to you. So you don't have to go around and tell everybody about it because they'll misunderstand. And I'm not trying to build my ministry. I'm just trying to preach the gospel. And so in verse 18, we see this quote of what Jesus was like as he ministered. And it says, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, 
my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. There we see a picture of the Father. And although the Pharisees hate Jesus, we see in response that the Father loves his Son and is so pleased in the manner in which he is preaching the gospel and the good news of the kingdom and that he's going to put his spirit upon him and that he will proclaim to the Gentiles the good news of the gospel. But here in verse 19, this is a direct commentary on what's going on between him and the Pharisees. It says, he will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not quarrel, he will not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What this means is that he won't fight fire with fire. He won't go and take on the Pharisees. He won't divert his preaching of good news to the people. That the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to preach the good news, to bind up the brokenhearted. We'll speak about that in a, min in a minute. To give sight to the blind, uh, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, to break the chains of sin that people were suffering. He didn't divert his message and begin to attack the Pharisees. He didn't get into quarrels. Now, when he, ever, when he met the Pharisees, what would he do? He'd preach the kingdom. When they asked him difficult questions, he'd reply, preaching the kingdom. When they taught falsehoods, he would preach the truth. So he wasn't afraid of the Pharisees. On the contrary, he could have crushed them like that, like a fly. Uh, but he didn't engage. He wasn't, at, he wasn't intimidated by them. He wasn't going to attack them. He wasn't going to quarrel with them or go get down to their level. He wasn't going to cry out. That idea of crying out uh, and his voice in the streets. You say, well, I thought he did cry out. I thought he preached the gospel all over Galilee and all over Judea. He did. But it's different to this crying out. This crying out would be a political crying out. This crying out would be a crying out of, of self, of assertion, of pushing himself. But we all know that Jesus never pushed himself. He only proclaimed his father and what his father had sent him to do. And then having said about this, this fact that he was moving in such power over the demonic, such power over sickness, that thousands and thousands of people were being saved from their sins and he couldn't shake off the crowds. I mean, absolute pinnacle of ministry. And yet he didn't use that power or that favor or, that, or, or the crowds to engage in fleshly fighting. He quietly took the humble path of non-retaliation to their threats and rather than be defensive, he proclaimed and continued to proclaim God alone and not himself. He wasn't promoting himself. And that's because of this verse in 20 that says, A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not be put out. And this really is referring to two things. It's referring to Jesus himself. Because in the end, his greatest act of ministry would be to allow himself to be crucified on the cross. Everything that he did, all this power, all this, what we might call, favor, all this popularity, all this power over the demonic, 
healing power, crowds, everything, all of these things. That wasn't his ultimate purpose. But his ultimate purpose was to become a battered reed. His ultimate purpose was to become a smoldering wick. And he was battered, wasn't he? I mean, he was battered and battered and scourged with whips, crown of thorns, battered, abused, had to carry his own cross. He was so weak, he couldn't carry his cross all the way. They had to get someone to help him there. And there on the cross, he was battered with nails until he died. And that's what he knew. And he knew that in the midst of this incredible popularity. And I mean, imagine this. Imagine you at the top of your game. Imagine all your wildest dreams have come true. Uh, imagine you're, you, you, you've got the popularity or you've got the top job, whatever that is in, 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 in your field. Or, or you, you've got the crowds, you've got the wealth, you've got whatever kind of power you could dream about. Or it would be wonderful to have power with wealth or it wonderful to have a great Twitter following or it would be wonderful to, to, to have a, a church of multitude, thousands and thousands and thousands. Or it would be wonderful to be on the media or TV or what, whatever it is that flicks your switch. Imagine walking in all that greatness and yet deep down inside, actually, at your core, you are a battered reed and a smoldering wick. Or you know that you're going to have to dismiss the crowds and embrace your destiny. But the wonderful thing here, it, it says that he's a battered reed and a smoldering wick in order that the Gentiles will also hear the good news. And he is a battered reed... But this battered reed will not break off. Uh, a battered reed, you, you get a picture of a reed. And reeds are very, very brittle, easily broken. And the picture here is that, that Jesus will offer himself for humanity, not as a strong oak that shall not ever be moved, but Jesus will offer himself in weakness and submission to his Father and in weakness and submission to the hands of evil, sinful men. Knowing that his father's in control, and knowing that they can batter him, but they cannot break him, because God will not allow him to be broken. I mean, that type of faith is greater faith than healing everybody that came to him. It's greater faith than delivering people from high-level demonic uh, forces that, that are blinding and muting people. That kind of faith that will allow himself to be battered, knowing that he won't be broken, it is greater faith than pulling all the crowds with an engaging, preaching message of good news. Not only is he a, going to be a battered reed for our sake, but not broken, as near to broken as you can be, but we all know that when he was battered on the cross and, and died, there was a third day. He came back. He rose again. He hadn't been broken. He'd been bruised, but not broken. Bruised to the point of brokenness. Bruised to the point of end. He couldn't get any more to being finished than when Jesus was on the cross, but still God withheld him from that moment of total bruising. And then a smoldering wick, the idea of a candle, 
and that candle is is right down to its limit and there's hardly any any wick left and and the 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 um uh, the little piece of string that's in it is finding it hard to get any fuel uh, and it's flickering it's a candle that's almost out flickering and it's beginning to smoke because there's no fire and when that fire dies down it smokes it's like anything like you do a campfire and then what happens is as the fire's burning well you can hardly see the smoke because there's so much fire but in those embers as the fire dies down and is in finally dying you just got a little bit of smoke there but you can't see the fire and the picture there is that Jesus, in all this great power and manifestation, that one day he is, his greatest ministry will to be smoldering, to be almost just like a candle about to be out. And at the edge of just being snuffed out, and you'll think it's all over and the smoke is just arising and the, the little glow on the, on the end of the wick is just about out. And yet, it didn't go out. And on the third day, the flame arose again. I think this is a wonderful window into the character of Jesus. The fact that here he is, you know, in great power, politically speaking, ministry speaking, at the top of his game. And yet in the midst of this, you still see signs of the humility of Christ. That in the midst of all this, he will not take on his enemies, even though he could crush them in an instant. He withdraws. He goes the path of faith and the path of peace. And he was bruised. Not for himself on the cross, but he was bruised for you and he was bruised for me. He was bruised so that we could be made whole. 1 Peter 2 verse 24 says, by his stripes you were healed. 1 Peter 2 24, by his stripes you were healed. And that's a quote from Isaiah 53 5 that says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, our sins. And he was bruised for our iniquities. Isaiah is prophesying the cross. Peter is reflecting on the cross, quoting Isaiah. By his stripes you were healed or made whole. Now, actually, if you look into the Greek of 1 Peter 2.24, it's not by his stripes. It's actually by his stripe. And the word, the Greek word used for stripes is not stripes, it's stripe. And the Greek word is molops, molops. And it means stripe, one. And actually, the best way to translate that into English so we understand it is bruise. Bruise. So by his bruise, you were made whole. Whole spiritually and eventually whole physically when you were raised from the dead. And that bruise is like a memorial. When he says by his bruise, it's the sum total of everything that Jesus went through in his bruising experience of his journey to the cross and death on the cross. If you take everything, all the suffering that Jesus suffered, all the bruising, all the battering of this reed, all, all the, the, the snuffing out of this, this, this 
candle in the darkness that was taking place on the cross. All the carrying of your sin and therefore your sicknesses. All the carrying of the sins on the world. If you, if you take the sum total of his bruising, that's what Peter is talking about. His stripe, wounded, bruised so that we could be saved. He was a bruised reed so that reeds like us, sinful human beings, would not be destroyed, but would be healed and saved and forgiven and made strong. He became a smoldering wick, almost snuffed out, so that we would not go out. The light of life in our lives would be saved and we would be saved eternally, all those that, that believe in him as saviour. So, Jesus here in this passage, he won't quarrel, he won't cry out, he won't fight, he won't work according to the flesh, he just trusts his father. He's a battered reed, but he won't break. He's a bruised reed, but he won't be torn in pieces. He's a smoldering wick, but he will not be put out. And the beautiful thing is, is this, is that as much as the enemy wanted to destroy him and tried to, he couldn't. As much as he tried to break him, he couldn't. As much as he tried to put out his light, he couldn't because God the Father was with him. Well, also, it's fair to say that this bruised uh, wick, this bruised reed and this smoldering wick that is being spoken about here in Isaiah in Matthew chapter 12, yes, it speaks about Jesus' ministry. But also you can read it like this. You can say that Jesus will not break off a battered reed. A battered reed, he will not break off. And a smoldering wick, he will not put out. In other words, you can say Jesus will not break a bruised reed in two. Jesus will not put out a human being that is, that is a smoldering wick. So now the attention moves from Jesus to human beings. We can first see this when it comes to salvation. That sometimes, or oftentimes, before a man or a woman or a child comes to Christ, because they're so proud and self-sufficient, because that's the way that we are, born sinful in a sinful world, and that we don't need, think that we need Jesus. Maybe you remember a time when you really didn't need Jesus. You weren't interested in it. Thank God there'll be a few here today who God met very early in your Christian life through a Christian family. Well, praise the Lord for that, that maybe you didn't need to be bruised or smoldering before you came to him. But many of us will recognize that there had to become a bruising in our lives. We went through some bruising situations. We met some people that bruised us in our lives. We, 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 we came to a place where we, we thought that we were the light of our own world. But then events took place until we looked at our lives. And we thought, what am I? I'm smoldering. I'm nothing. What am I? I, I, I everything I'd hoped for is gone. We were battered. We were bruised. We were smoldering, but it was God's purpose to bring him to, to him to be saved. Sometimes we need to pray for those that were praying to meet with the Lord. Lord, bring them to a place where they will meet with you. And often that will mean, won't it, that some bruising's got to take place in their life. Have you ever witnessed to someone, or do you have a friend or a family member? They just don't need Jesus. You talk to them, they're not interested. 
You have a track for them they don't want. They're just not interested. Well, I don't need Jesus. I don't need your God. He's your crutch, not mine. They're, they, they're like, we used to be self-centered, strong. They don't, they don't need Jesus. And you pray, Lord, if only you could bring them to a, a saving knowledge, a place where they, they know you. And you know that that's probably going to entail some bruising, some bruising in order to bring them to the place where they, where they can be saved. If we look at our lives, I can't speak for everyone, but I think I can speak for many here today and those watching. If we look at our lives, isn't it true there was some bruising and at the time was very, very painful? But if it hadn't been for the bruising, if we hadn't come to that smoldering moment, would we have ever known our need of Jesus? So there's a bruising that brings us to healing, a salvation, a knowledge that we need Jesus. And then when we get saved, the healing begins. But I must say also, sometimes God still has to bruise Christians. Now, if you feel all bruised and beaten, I'm not, and you think, oh, not more. Wait, I'm coming to you in a moment. So don't worry, they, the, those of tender hearts and dispositions, I'm not really speaking to you. I'm probably speaking to people that won't even take what I'm saying next seriously. Uh, that's why they're about to be bruised. Sometimes people do need, Christians need further bruising. They need to be bruised before they can use I didn't say bruised. Bruised, not bruised. Bruised before you can be used. Look at Peter. He needed to be bruised before he was used. Now, Peter wasn't going around already bruised and broken, needing healing. On the contrary, Peter was going around. He was the man of power for the hour. And he was, Jesus, let me tell you something. You're not going to the cross. I've seen your power, your healing, your miracles, the crowds. You're not going to the cross. You're going to the imperial throne. And Jesus turns around and said, get behind me, Satan. Gave him a black eye, bruised him. But he still didn't, that bruising wasn't enough. And then remember, Jesus said, you're going to betray me three times. And Peter says, not me. No. See all your disciples around you, Jesus. They may all forsake you, but I will never forsake you. You see, Peter didn't see himself as a bruised reed being ready to be healed. Peter saw him as a mighty oak. Jesus' second in command, upon which he probably misunderstood that, that Jesus' words, just like the Catholics have done for centuries, upon this rock I will build my church. I think he may have thought it was him, it wasn't. He was talking about the rock of revelation, that Jesus is the Christ. And then we know what happened. I'll never forsake you. And the cock crows three times, and the man is bruised. He's weeping. He's broken. He leaves bitterly. He's denied Jesus to his face. But you know the story. He was bruised, but he was bruised to be used. And then when Jesus restored him three times at the ends of John's gospel, he said, feed my lambs, tend my lambs. And there was something that had changed in Peter's life. He wasn't the old Peter who thought of himself as an oak tree. But God had bruised him to use him. 
Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. There's a man of power for the hour, planting cell groups all, all the way around and, and ministering and healing and the knowledge taken up to heaven. I mean, this guy was, was powerful, powerful apostle, the greatest apostle of, of, of the day. And what did God do? Well, God knew he needed to be bruised, sent a thorn in the flesh. Paul said, can you get this? This, this thing keeps bruising me, Lord. This thing, whether it was a persecutor or a person or some people think it was an illness, it doesn't really matter what it was, but what it was was painful and bruising to his life. But he understood that God said to him, my grace is sufficient to you and that this was given to him so that he could continue to move in great power and be trusted with great things from God and not ruin it by thinking he was something that he, he was not. Even David, God took David as a young shepherd boy. He was a reed. But there came a time when David, when God had given him all these victories, began to trust in himself. He no longer saw himself as a reed. He saw himself as the mighty oak, took another man's wife murdered the man on the battlefield so that people wouldn't know and then Nathan the prophet spoke to him about a man who had a, a vast flock of lambs and then stole the, the only lamb of another man and David was incensed and said this man shall be destroyed and Nathan said the man is you and he was bruised and you can read his account of his bruising in Psalm 51 which is his response and he says let the bones, Lord, which you have broken, rejoin. So there are some times in the Christian life when people who are uppity, proud, trusting in themselves, brash, God says, I can leave you as you are, or I can love you enough to bruise you. I remember an American minister, a great friend of Kensington Temple, not Robert Slurden, many years ago, and, um, uh, and he had discipleship and he had cell groups. And, uh, and there was one phrase that people in his cell group, men in his cell group, always feared to hear. And what he would do is if he spots something, an arrogance or, or something that, that was just really out of order in their lives, he, he loved them too much just to leave it and say, oh, well, whatever, I'm not going to confront it. But he had a phrase and the phrase would be this. Permission to wound you. And when we heard this, we, 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 we sort of like would say it to one another at KT. because So he would sit someone down where he'd seen something that was ungodly, something that was wrong. And he would say, brother, permission to wound you. At the time, I said, if he, I said, he's not my pastor. Colin's my pastor. And if he ever sits me down and says, permission to wound you, Bruce, I'm going to say, no. <laughs> no, you don't. But when he said permission to wound you, what he meant was, what I'm going to say you won't like, but do I have permission to say it because I'm saying it for your own good? Because I want to see you prosper and thrive and be more fruitful. Permission to wound you. Well, God loves us so much he doesn't ask us permission sometimes, I've noticed. He just comes along and wounds us. And then it's only afterwards we sort of like, God, thank you for that. I needed it. 
I'm a different person now. I was bruised and you put me through a bruising scenario. And at the time I was like doubting you, doubting others, didn't know what was going on. But now looking back, not during it, looking back, I understand that there were issues that you were dealing with that I wasn't prepared to deal with unless I was bruised. It reminds me of, of a doctor and uh, sometimes if someone breaks something in their arms uh, and then the doctor looks at it and they have to re-break it, don't they? Because somehow it's set in itself a different way. And so some doctors say, well, you've broken this, that and the other, um, but I'm going to have to re-break it to set it. What? A doctor breaking your bones? Yes, in order to set it properly. And so these doctors can re-break that bone in your foot or your thing, re-break it, but they break it in order to set it again. So God can at times bruise people who think that they're oaks, but he does it out of kindness, kindness, all right? Now, the best thing, of course, is to be the sort of people that God doesn't need to bruise. Quick to obey the word. Quick to trust God. Quick to humble ourselves and to seek him. You don't have to be bruised. But often there's those of us that God really wants to use. But unfortunately, the only way is to bruise. And over my life, there has been times when God has bruised me. But he's not broken me. And at these times, I'm speaking to people that have maybe experienced this in the past or may experience it in the present, when God allows this bruising to come in whatever form it comes, you can feel sometimes like you are a bruised reed and you think, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to be broken any minute. But let me tell you something. God will never break his children. He will allow them to be bruised if a greater healing and wholeness will come into their lives. He is the great physician, remember. So if human doctors can break a bone to mend a bone, then we need to learn that sometimes Jesus will break us to make us. But he'll, he'll never, 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 not, none of his children will he ever hurt except to heal. You hear what I'm saying? It's like a doctor may, may, may put a syringe in or a scalpel and, and you feel the pain, but you know the doctor's only giving you the pain because you're going to come out whole and strong. I have a disabled daughter, a precious disabled daughter, mentally disabled. And one of the things that we always have difficulty with is when something has to happen medically, when she needs a syringe or something has, something has to happen uh, or they have to put something, a feed into her into hand. And we know that because she doesn't quite understand that when they put that feed in her hand or put that thing, or, or, or when she has to go in, in, in one of those MRI things and, and they put a mask on her, she's struggling because she doesn't understand that these painful things, uncomfortable things, are there to make a stronger whole he, heal and to, and, to, and to benefit her. And sometimes I think well, we're like her with God. So I, I just say that out there, just in case... You can now look back on some things that happened to you. Or perhaps you can say, hey, you know, I, I, I'd prefer not to be bruised. Lord, I'm going to seek you. What are you speaking into my life? What areas do you want change? How can, how can I, 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 I grow? We, we should choose to be like horses. The, the Bible says in, in the Proverbs that, that we shouldn't be like um, uh, stubborn mules that won't move except by the stick 
of the rider. And I think sometimes when the Holy Spirit is guiding and leading us, we can be stubborn mules. And we can just be set in our ways and we're not going to move in the direction that the Lord wants. And, and, and the only way he can get us there, which is the best for us, is sometimes to apply the stick. We should be like the horses of the, uh, of the cavalry, the cavalry, the household cavalry. You see them, the blues, uh, the, the, the blues and the royals and the household cavalry in the reds. And I went and someone bought me a ticket who was a captain from there, who was a Christian, to go and see their review. And um, it was an Olympia. One of the most amazing things was this, is that they had people that were riding the horses and they had these big, like, um, banners or flags and they held those and they had no reins on the horses. And so the horses were going on and they were doing all these complex, you know, just missing one another and, and doing these different formations with no reins. And I couldn't understand how this was possible because I was just learning to ride and I was spending most of my time pulling these reins, trying to get a horse to do anything for me was almost impossible. And so I asked the captain after, I said, how did they do that? He said, oh, the horses are so sensitive and so well trained that they don't need reins. So I said, so how do they steer them? He says, well, they do it by their knees. They'll press the knee in and that knee, the pressing of the knees is enough to guide the horse. And I thought, what sensitivity? Finally, I want to speak to those of you that um, are, are, are already bruised and broken. And, and to those that I'm speaking to you, I, I say again, do not put yourself in the category of those that think that they're oaks in the kingdom that God has to bruise to bring them down. Because you know that's not you. You know that you don't walk around thinking you're the greatest thing. On the contrary, you think that you're the worst thing. You don't go around asserting yourself or pushing yourself forward uh, as Jesus didn't, even though he was so powerful. So, you know, so please, because the problem with this type of people is they will immediately think, well, no wonder God is bruising me. I'm such a rotten, terrible person. Look, if you even think like that, God is not out to bruise you. God is out to heal you. You hear me? Hear me. And so we see this in Luke, Luke chapter 4, Jesus' manifesto. And, uh, and here it's all about healing those that are bruised, bruised from sin, bruised from life, self-bruising, all the types of things that beat us down. Let me read this for you. If I could have the musicians on the platform. And so this is Jesus. When Jesus is manifesto, you say, which political party shall I vote for in the coming elections? And you say, well, I don't know. What's their manifesto? In other words, what will they do when they're in power? The Conservatives, the Labour, the Liberals, UKIP. You ask for their manifesto. Well, this is Jesus' manifesto. This is what he came to do in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. In other words, this is a healing agenda. He's come to release captives. He's come to preach to those that are poor of spirit, of heart. 
He's come to bring sight to those that are blind and can't see, to free those that are oppressed. Jesus has come to heal the bruised reeds. He's come to restore them. He's come to take those that are smoldering and saying, I just can't take it anymore. And to, let, and to breathe on the embers of their faith and cause it to live again. God will never allow the embers of your faith to die out. But he will come again by his Holy Spirit. And you ever done that on a fire, campfire? And you keep breathing on it. And then the embers come up. And they light up and then they die down and you blow and you breathe and you blow and you breathe and then something starts to flicker. Then you put fuel on it and it begins to light. It begins to blaze.